I'm sure like me, a lot of you who don't work in crypto are trying to understand and learn about it these days. I know that some of us are very skeptical, some are intrigued, and that some are just curious and trying to learn as much as they can. After this conversation with Ken Kruger, you can consider me among those who are really inspired at the possibilities. Ken deeply believes that cryptocurrencies are the future of money. He is walking the walk and is the founder and CEO of Moon, a company on a mission to bring this future to fruition. By background, he's a serial founder and software engineer with a computer science degree from Cornell and an MS in industrial engineering and operations research from Columbia, where he studied financial engineering. In the past, he has worked at Lockheed Martin as a software engineer and as a product manager on classified military projects. I greatly enjoyed this conversation and hope you get a lot out of it as well. All right, let's head on up to the office. In the office, baby. Going up. So Ken, you know, I, I see a lot of skepticism in the crypto space. You know it well, you know, regular non-tech people, many of my friends, many of my family members, people I, I really care about. They say things to me all the time. They, they're extremely skeptical. Um, you know, I know the tech community calls them normies. Maybe it's not the, the, the greatest compliment, so I'm not going to use that term. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people who have been successful, frankly, in their own careers and their own fields, they look at crypto and they say, wow, this is just too weird for me and suspect. And of course, lately for normal, regular people, they're saying, wow, uh, I doubt the world is going to go this way and that people will be transacting natively in crypto in the future. Uh, but, you know, this is your world. Uh, why don't you break it down for us? Sure. Yeah. And I think there's initially you kind of have to break it down into two segments. One is there's all the hype, right? You know, buying a uh, NFT rock for half a million dollars worth of Ethereum. Uh, that's hype, I think, at, at this point. And I can see why people would look at that and say, well, that's that's kind of ridiculous. What's the real world application of that? But there's always hype that precedes the real problems that are being solved. So uh, what I'll go through here is kind of what, what we see happening in crypto payments, how people are using crypto today solve real problems. And I think a lot of times people really don't understand the problems that are being solved right now. It actually doesn't get as much notoriety and recognition as, you know, the silly headline grabbers like, you know, NFT rock sells for half a million dollars, right? So, uh, you know, initially, obviously, we have to talk about Bitcoin. That's where all of this started. Uh, you know, people have been spending Bitcoin since really since Bitcoin started since 2009, 2010. Um, you know, a lot of people were saying in 2013, you know, Bitcoin's going to replace Visa. This is what everybody's going to be making payments with Bitcoin. And it didn't exactly shape up. There were a few issues with it. Uh, and the two main things with Bitcoin is one is that it's a little slow. If you want to make a payment with Bitcoin, you have to wait uh, what generally what they call six confirmation times. Each confirmation time is 10 minutes. So you're going to wait about an hour for the recipient to receive 
the funds. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are going to McDonald's, that doesn't work. <laughs> you, right. know, you need to make that payment relatively quickly. Um, the other issue is the fees, right? So you probably see in the news, all these, oh, you, you know, you're buying an NFT and the fees on Ethereum are so high right now, you're paying $160. Uh, same thing happens on Bitcoin, where the the more the network is being utilized, the higher the fee gets. Right. So in order to send $5 a Bitcoin, you may have to pay a $5 fee. Yeah. And that doesn't exactly work for payments, right? right? Now, it can work really well for large payments. Uh, you know, if you want to send a billion dollars of Bitcoin from here to China, you can pay that $5 fee and that's fantastic. That's an amazing deal, right? right? But in order to be adopted by, you know, the average Joe to make payments, you know, there needs to be a better solution. So what's kind of adopted uh, recently by the Bitcoin community is what's called the Lightning Network, which has aimed to solve these problems. And this has been under development for a while now. The whole Bitcoin community has really rallied around the Lightning Network. And it solves these main points. One, it makes the Bitcoin transactions nearly instantaneous. You can send it in about a second. Mm -hmm. And there are still some fees, but those fees are generally around one or two cents to send a transaction. So it's still Bitcoin that you're sending, but this is what they call a second layer solution. So they're building on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, allowing people to um, you know, make payments in Bitcoin peer to peer to merchants, et cetera, but solving those core issues. Yeah. So, so that's what we're seeing. But the big thing that people look at with Bitcoin payments is it's not stable in price. Right. Right. That's a real big issue. There are a lot of people who like Bitcoin. They are the sound money people. They're like, oh, we want sound money. You know, these are the people that would love for us to go back to the gold standard. Right. Yes. And they love to live on Bitcoin. Uh, and that's that's fine and wonderful. But for a lot of people, they say, hey, that's way too volatile. Yeah. I can't. How do I do my accounting in that? Right. Uh, and there are people who do that. But it's it's a relatively small number of people at this point. So what's you know, really coming down the pipes now are what are called stable coins. Uh, there are a lot of stable coins out there. Most now I'll say most crypto transactions, about 85 percent of crypto payments are still in Bitcoin. Wow. Wow. Well, I did not know that. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, you'd think you'd think it would be stable coins, but the vast majority is Bitcoin. Um, and stable coins are becoming increasing percentage of crypto payments globally, but they still haven't caught on as much as as Bitcoin payments. So <clears throat> now within the world of stable coins, um, you know, you you may ask like, okay, why would somebody want this? Why can't you just hold a dollar? Right. right? And there's a few interesting use cases here. Um, I think the, the one that is easy for people to see the value in is in the developing world. You know, if you look at countries uh, in Latin America, Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia, a lot of unbanked people, a lot of unstable governments, yep. unstable currencies are experiencing hyperinflation. They are, they'll do anything to hold a U.S. dollar. Uh, and and they do. There are a lot of countries that you know you'll find a U.S. dollar more common than you'll find the local currency. So when when now you introduce this concept of a stable coin, that's very powerful. Uh, so I'll, I'll give an example. If you're down in Venezuela, people want to hold dollars. 
you can go to a corner store and you can exchange the bolivar for US dollars. You can also exchange it for crypto. But if you get dollars and you, you pay for dollars at a local shop, they may not actually have the change to give you change for your purchase because there's just a shortage of coins and, and bills circulating in the country. So the stable coins are actually acting as a way to you know, hold US dollars, but you can get, give and get change, you can participate digitally, you can, you know, really opens up modern finance to people who are, you know, would otherwise never have any access. And just cutting in here for a second, my understanding of stable coins is that they are tethered to an underlying currency. In this case, we're talking about stable coins that are, let's say, equivalent to a dollar. Yes. Is that what we're talking about? So, so the people, let's say, to riff on your example, people in Venezuela, the currencies totally devalued the Bolivar, you know, they're living in extremis over there for the most part. And you're saying that the practical currency essentially to survive is the dollar because the Bolivar is basically worthless, but they don't have enough of the physical change. They don't have five $1 bills equals a $5 bill, et cetera, et cetera. So again, out of necessity, digitally via their phones, let's say, I'm guessing, they can transact with the store owners and each other in, in these stable coins that are tethered to the American dollar. Mm -hmm. And so they've essentially been able to bypass or go around the particular constraints of, you know, the, the, the government, the monetary system, et cetera. And this is becoming a thing you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. It's happening in a lot of countries. Uh, Venezuela is always, you know, Venezuela is the typical example used by people in crypto, but it, you, you also see this in Argentina, Nigeria. I think, you know, we're seeing this more and more in Lebanon as they go through their currency crisis. So, you know, wherever these governments are, are either collapsing or they're becoming more authoritarian, they're introducing currency controls or manipulating their uh, central currency too much, you start to see more and more crypto adoption because it becomes out of a necessity if you want to protect your wealth. Um, so, you know, if, if you look at Argentina, for example, um, you have a lot of people every, every four years, they elect a new uh, political regime. And generally when that happens, everybody's bank account, uh, about 20% gets deducted. And they, you know, you get that haircut. And that's even if you're holding US dollars in one of those accounts. So the idea that, hey, I'm going to hold a stable coin in a cryptocurrency wallet, nobody can take that from you, right? That's, that's cryptographically secured. You're protecting your wealth, right? And I think that's something that, that's very important to people. Okay. And, and let me freeze frame on that because, you know, I'm kind of trying to be the voice of regular people who are not in their daily lives immersed in the particular issues that these people you're talking about in Lebanon, Argentina, Venezuela, Nigeria, et cetera, are dealing with. So practically speaking, they're, they're usually, I'm guessing, transacting on their mobile phones. Yes. With these wallets. Yeah. Yeah. Very often it's, it's pretty much all on their mobile phone. Right. So they have mobile phones. 
They have crypto wallets on those mobile phones to which they have, in one way or another, built up a crypto balance, a balance in whatever way they achieved it, they were able to uh, get crypto on those wallets, Bitcoin or whatever it is. And when they go to a store or they transact with each other, they are transacting natively in crypto from one wallet to another. The store owner say, this is my wallet address, pay me this. And they pay, they get what they need or they're doing some transaction. And you say the government can't stop it. That's why I'm freeze framing here, you know, because I get pushback on this. Okay. And they say, well, you know, is that true? It can, can like a very motivated government say with whatever controls that they want to put on, however aggressive they might be, can that, is that truly the case that they can't stop people from transacting natively in crypto through these wallets? So it, you know, you really hit the nail on the head. It depends how aggressive the government wants to be, right? Um, generally, if you look at Venezuela or Argentina and they, they say, hey, you know, we're putting all these limits on a cryptocurrency, right? Um, a lot of the activity that's happening, it's all peer-to-peer. Uh, a lot of it's even happening over WhatsApp. Someone will post on WhatsApp. That's actually how even the non-cryptocurrency exchange happens. I have a $20 US dollar bill. Who wants to buy this for me for Bolivar or vice versa, right? It's a lot of peer-to-peer, and that's now happening with cryptocurrency. So could a government go in and tell WhatsApp, hey, you know, we need you to shut this type of stuff down? Could they go into the telecom companies and say, hey, we want you to restrict certain types of network traffic so that they can't interact with these cryptocurrency protocols, right? Uh, we've never seen that happen before. Uh, I think maybe the closest thing is China, but they really haven't been all that successful at it just yet. But it it really depends how motivated they are and how how technically sophisticated the government wants to be to prevent this activity. So I guess here we are, 2021. Mm -hmm. This activity is happening. It's happening in a myriad of different ways through a myriad of different channels. You mentioned WhatsApp and others where you know, literally they're in their homes or, you know, uh, just transacting with strangers perhaps. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's hard to stop unless, as you said, the phone companies are, are, you know, are co-opted by the local government or a bunch of, um, you know, military guys show up at your house because they don't like you. They heard about you, right? And they kick in the door and they take your phone. Yeah. Um, now, you, you did mention the closest we've seen is China, which, you know, has literally outlawed, banned Bitcoin mining mm-hmm. and I believe crypto in general. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, is that happening in China anyway? Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of activity happening in China still. Um, okay. You know, if you look at China, they, they, you know, they have the great firewall of China. Yes. Um, but, it, you know, if you ever interact with China, you know that everybody's got a VPN pretty much and they circumvent that okay. firewall. Right. And, and that's effectively what's happening there. Say, hey, you know, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be doing that. But people find a way. Right. Interesting. And, and that's really, you know, you know, that, that happens time and time again, right? It's um, every time a government comes out with some countermeasure, you're going to have people who 
come up with a countermeasure to that countermeasure. And it's this game of whack-a-mole that happens, right? You never entirely get rid of it, but you know, you you can be pretty successful at maybe preventing somebody who's never learned about crypto before to start getting into crypto in China. But if somebody's already into it, um, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. No, no, super helpful. And I appreciate that detail you're, you're, you're providing. Um, okay. So let's circle back to what you were saying, your, your original thread here, which was the importance of stable coins. Yeah. So and now that's just, I would say that's the most critical use case that, that we just went over. There are a bunch more though. You know, we see a lot happening in DeFi right now. Uh, you see a lot happening in gaming and uh, all these new protocols and technologies that are coming out that are utilizing blockchain, and they very often involve stable coins. So say, for example, you're, uh, you're interacting with some DeFi protocol or uh, crypto protocol, you're going to end up having a bunch of tokens. And maybe you're taking out a loan in a DeFi protocol, right? You'll end up taking out a stable coin. The, the question is, what do you then do with it, right? And so far, what most people have had to do is they'll then sell that crypto for uh, fiat currency and then spend the fiat currency, right? What, uh, what we're seeing more and more is that people don't want to leave the crypto world. They want to keep their value within crypto and then start interacting with it. And I think that's something that we're going to see much more and more uh, uh, utilized in the future. Um, so, and then there's a bunch of different types of stable coins here. There's a lot of different things going on. You have the, uh, the biggest ones are these um, stable coins that are collateralized with fiat currency. So the most notable one is USDC. That is run by a company called Circle. You know, for pretty much for every unit of stable coin they issue, they have a dollar and a trust. Um, and that is the most simple way to issue a stable coin. Uh, what's interesting is that the most popular stable coin, uh, USDT, it's called Tether, is uh, there's a lot of controversy around that. Um, you yeah. know, there's a lot of lawsuits going on. So, so that's a that's a really interesting use case where it's you know the market is acting as if it is fully collateralized and backed by uh, by paper, but it seems to not be the case. Uh, so that, yep. that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. And that's you know about 80% of, of the stable coins that, that are out there all in Tether. Um, and then there's also this concept of algorithmic stable coins where you're not necessarily holding a uh, you know, paper in a trust that's backing it, but there's an algorithm at, in the protocol layer that is determining the value of that currency. So DAI is a great example where what they call, uh, they call it being soft pegged to the dollar. And what that means is that, you know, people are collateralizing, they're over collateralizing with some other digital asset, say uh, Ethereum, right? And they get these tokens out and there's a bunch of market incentives set up to stabilize the cost of one die to always be as close as possible to a dollar. It varies a little bit. Right? 
Uh, and then there are other projects that are trying to become stable, but actually not tied to the dollar, right? So, so far we've talked about stable and we say the US dollar is stable. It's really, it's an inflationary currency. So the value of the dollar is constantly going down just a little bit. It's just stably decreasing over time for the most part. So people have set out, there's a company called Reserve. They've set out to say, how do we create a currency not pegged to a fiat currency that is neither inflationary or deflationary? Like that's kind of like the true stability that people are searching for. And that's, that's a, a you know, a little more far-fetched. It's a little more out there. No, you know, nobody's actually built that yet, but there are people working on it. I think that's going to be a really, really interesting concept. And I think that's where you're going to see people in the developed world wanting to hold tokens like that because they just want to avoid inflation. I see. <clears throat> I see. Um, no, that that sounds fascinating. I, I don't know how the hell they're going to figure that out, but um that's like next level stuff in this, in this arena, no doubt. All right. So with regard to stable coins, I think the best way to drive it home for everybody is let's again, go to a use, some use cases, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and give, give it that human layer. Uh, let's, let's talk about, you know, use any example you want someone in a country trying to do X using their, Mm, mobile phone, whatever that is, crypto wallet, just walk us through how they would get a, get a stable coin, why they would want to do it, and then what they did with that stable coin. Yeah. So here's a great example that's becoming increasingly popular in the world of remittances. So someone in the US, they want to send funds to their family, maybe in the Philippines or Mexico or something like that. Massive use case, one of the biggest in the world, billions and billions of dollars. Okay. Exactly. And normally you're using Western Union, you're using these services, they charge you an arm and a leg, and it's terrible. Uh, What you can do as a, you know, say you're in the US, you go on Coinbase, you buy some stable coin, say USDC, you can send it to your family, it'll take... I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour to get there. And once they've received it, they can convert it back into the local currency. And you've just done pretty much the least expensive and fastest remittance you can in the world right now. Fascinating. So let's say I'm a guy, I'm a laborer, I'm a day worker. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm here in the US, for example. I want to send money to my family. That's why I'm here. I've got children. Instead of Western Union, where the recipient in the recipient country have maybe has to drive there, you know, risk, you know, apart from these usurious Western Union fees, maybe there's physical security issues driving, you know, in Latin America somewhere to a Western Union and, and getting money from there. Who knows? Instead, literally, I'm going, you're saying it, I'm going on my mobile phone. I have a Coinbase account, which I've put money in, fiat, US dollars in. I buy up with, U.S. dollars, some, uh, I guess you said USDC. Yeah, USDC or really anything. You know, you could, people are doing with Bitcoin, sure. Okay, or the or the cryptocurrency mm-hmm. itself, not mm-hmm. a stable coin, whatever. And then I literally just send it through that wallet to the address wallet of my family. Mm-hmm. And now it's literally in 30 minutes, it's in their crypto wallet on their phone mm-hmm. to which they have access to on their phone. And then, and then finish that. What happens over there? How do they use that money? 
Yeah, so there are really two options, right? Uh, the, the most popular one that most people do right now is they then convert it to the local currency. Right? Okay. But what we're seeing more and more is the desire to spend the cryptocurrency directly. And the reason for that is, say, for example, um, you're, you're remitting funds to India, right? There's a huge issue where if you then want to convert that crypto to rupees, it is expensive. There are taxes, there are fees. You may lose 30% of the value when you do that. Um, and now you're pretty much right back to the Western Union situation. Yeah, right. So, but what happens if you can then just spend those digital assets directly, right? Now we're looking at a world where you're really saving a lot of money. This is, this is a really great way. You send your remittance and now, wow, one, maybe one of your primary sources of income now is cryptocurrency coming from your family overseas you should probably consider like living in more of the crypto world now because it, there's just so much friction to go back into the fiat world. Fascinating. That's massive. So in that use case, converting to rupees, I guess the Indian government, the, the reason you have that issue is because the Indian government looks at that as some kind of taxable event or something? Yeah. So there's, uh, there are some taxable events there are a lot of fees. There's, you know, th there's a lot going on. I'm not an expert on the on the Indian crypto regulations, but there's a lot going on. It's a it's a constantly shifting environment, and a lot of people have told me that it is it is painful. Yeah. And now, you know, whether it's in India or South America, what are the typical techniques from the recipient's crypto wallet to convert from whatever cryptocurrency arrived? into the local currency? What are, what are they typically doing to convert if they want to go to the quote fiat? Yeah. So there's really uh, two things. If, if you're fortunate to live in a country that has a functioning uh, you know, cryptocurrency exchange that has crypto and fiat currency and has all the proper banking licenses and, and the government you know, looks upon that in a friendly manner, uh, you can just go onto that exchange, execute a trade, and, and you're good to go. You know, in some places in, in the Philippines, for example, there's coins.ph is a very popular wallet. You go to 7-Eleven and you can just take out some cash. Uh, so that's great. Right. And, and in that scenario, when you say that, you're saying, OK, they probably have a bank account. I'm guessing they're taking the crypto and, and they're converting it to local currency. Is it they're like going on an exchange and then they just hold the local currency on the exchange itself? And or they can just sort of ACH it or transfer it to their bank account, I'm guessing, so they can get actual physical currency. If they're fortunate enough to have a bank account, really. Okay. You know, that's the thing is that a lot of these folks don't even have that. And if the, so, if they don't have a bank account, do they leave the local currency on the exchange once it's been converted? How do what happens there? Yeah. So, so you can do that. Uh, there are some systems where um, you know, there's like a voucher. You can get a voucher code, and you take the voucher code to a, a pawn shop, and then they'll you know you do a little KYC type thing, just verify that uh, you're you're not some criminal, and then you can take some uh, some of the local currency out. So wow. you know the each country is a little bit different in their payment system and their regulations. So, you know, that's kind of like the best case. And then the worst case is you're operating in a peer-to-peer -peer manner 
uh, you know, you're on WhatsApp posting a story saying, hey, I have some crypto. Who's got who's got a twenty dollar bill? Who's got some Bolivar? I need to go buy some bread. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Now, but there's another nuance here before we move on, because yeah, I want, you know, whenever I listen to stuff, I'm always saying, I wish they asked this. I wish they asked that, you know, so sort of circling back to one more aspect of this. Back to that original use case, I'm a let's say I'm a day laborer in the United States. I want to send money to my family. I have a Coinbase account. Okay. I got some some money. I put it in to my Coinbase account, fiat. I'm converting it to some cryptocurrency and then I'm sending it to my family. Okay. In Latin America somewhere. What's the give and take? What are the nuances? How do stable coins fit into this? Why are they important? You said earlier it could be any kind of crypto. Mm-hmm. Right. So why are stable coins so important in this scenario? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you've probably seen, you know, Bitcoin's in the news, Ethereum's in the news. The, the prices of these assets are very volatile. Right. And while, you know, Bitcoin has a lot of notoriety and is still the, the most widely used uh, for remittances and payments in the crypto world, a lot of people are seeing the value in having it where it's stable. So if, say, you know, in the process of sending some value to your family, the price of Bitcoin goes down 20%, you know, you don't want to just accidentally lose 20% of the value if they needed to go and spend that right away, right? Ah, okay. So what another way of saying it is, not not in every case, I understand there are no absolutes here in crypto, but for that particular person, that guy who's a day laborer, he probably should convert to a stable coin and send it over to his family and they get a stable coin so that if there's a 20% price drop <laughs> in whatever coin he, he, he could have sent, he, he avoids that serious mishap, correct? Exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's the power of stable coins in a very human way. That's the power. It's it's easily convertible from a cryptocurrency to a stable coin that's tethered to something to US dollar or whatever. So, you know, it's like I'm figuring this out in real time, Ken. So, but I know a lot of people are with me here and thank you for your patience. Um, and I know they appreciate me for digging in here. That's the power right there. That's one of the powerful things about it. It's just like, you know, you don't risk yet another way of getting screwed. You could have gotten screwed by Western Union. You could have gotten screwed by some ridiculous tax or, or local government municipal law, right? And, and screw your family of your hard-earned money where you're laboring in the sun for eight hours cleaning some rich person's lawn, right? And then the indignity of getting that money taken from you by Western Union or your family member getting held up at gunpoint at some Western union or driving three hours there. The other way of doing it is just the practical, you know, uh, Murphy's law thing of, uh, you know, Bitcoin dropped 20% the day after I sent it. And my, I screwed myself and my family again, a stable coin prevents that from happening and preserves value. My hard earned value and backbreaking work in the sun. Is this what, am I on the right track here? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the, 
what I see as some of the largest values of uh, stable coins and, and in cryptocurrency in general right now. Uh, so if somebody ever says, I don't understand how this is going to be a thing, it's like, well, hey, here are some just a handful of use cases that are really changing people's lives right now. And I, I mean, that alone is, is just massive. It's visceral. The power of it is visceral. Um, I guess before to be comprehensive, the, the, before we move on from stable coins, what else is important about stable coins? I mean, that, that's huge, mm -hmm. but what else is good about them? There, there's a lot to say about stable coins, but I'll, I'll touch on one other thing that's, that's coming out, which uh, you know, people have probably seen in the news is this whole idea of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And that's a really interesting topic. Pretty much every central bank in the world is investigating and, and playing around developing uh, a central bank digital currency. It acts very similar to a stable coin. Imagine a uh, instead of the, uh, the, the U.S. Fed issuing paper money, they're issuing a digital asset on a blockchain. Uh, so, so they're looking at that, and there's a lot of really interesting things that can happen there. And the best example is to look at China and look at the digital RMB. And what they're doing is super interesting because it allows the government to have unprecedented control and visibility into the flow of money. We're talking about not only would a government have the ability to monitor all transactions, who has how much money, and just know in real time everything that's happening. But you can also do really interesting things by programming that money. So for example, assume that the government put out a, uh, a stimulus check, just like they did with COVID. But instead of mailing out a check, they deposited it into your you know, crypto wallet. They could say, these funds need to be spent in the next two months or they disappear. Mm. They could say these funds can only be spent on food items and can't be spent anywhere else, right? You can program that money and you can set limits and constraints on those funds. And that's where things get really interesting. And that's what uh, China is really pushing really hard right now. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. Um, I mean, it, 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 it kind of sounds like in the last example of the power of stable coins, it's incredibly moving to think about how liberating this is for mm -hmm. people because, you know, it's freedom. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's true. They worked their butts off. They earned that money fair and square. And now almost the full value of that money is being shared with their dependents mm -hmm. who counted on them. In this scenario, we have that whole concept of programmable money, right? Yep. It's digital currency that the a government has tethered to their currency, gives them enormous power supervisory power, as you said, um, they can be very prescriptive about how stuff and, and, and how, how money is spent. And in the context of a stimulus check, you say, oh, wow, that's amazing. There was so much fraud and waste with these checks. You hear about companies getting it that shouldn't have gotten it, people that applied for it and definitely 
didn't quote unquote deserve that money and et cetera, et cetera. Or, but then again, it sounds like a, a double-edged sword because depending on the government, this supervisory prescriptive aspect of it can suddenly become maybe the most powerful instrument in the history of the world in terms of controlling a population and uh, <laughs> censoring them if they don't like them or they don't like their views or, or what have you. So it sounds, you know, it's technologically very interesting, but it also sounds like a, a fraught and, and very double-edged possibility. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the pendulum swings both ways, right? And this is a very powerful technology that we have now. And you have these two sides, you have governments that are saying, Hey, let's take blockchain technology, cryptocurrency. How can we use this to meet our needs and our goals? right? Whatever those needs and goals may be, they may not be good. On the other side, you have the people who say, hey, we want to have a completely decentralized, distributed network of money. Nobody has any control. Nobody can stop it. They want to make it as sensor resistant as possible. And there are pros and cons on, on both sides of that, right? I mean, you could, you know, if you wanted, you could send money to terrorists on a, you know, just send them some Bitcoin. Nothing can stop you, right? Uh, so there's pros and cons there. Right. Um, and same thing with a, a central government digital currency. They can have great, you know, amazing power to do amazing things and they can have amazing power, to do some terrible things. Right. So, yes. uh, you know, great power comes great responsibility. So. On that um, great line, perhaps we should now move off stable coins because I think you just gave us an incredible uh, understanding of what they are all about. What? Okay, so you said Bitcoin. In terms of crypto payments, you got the Bitcoin world with the the Lightning Network solving a lot of those problems, and the, uh, you know, in terms of speed. And then you were talking about stable coins. What else is there? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of cryptocurrencies out there that are trying to be a better form of money or trying to be used for payments. So, uh, for example, you can look at Ethereum right now. They just made an upgrade to the protocol where uh, it makes it more deflationary than it was before. Mm -hmm. uh, they call it super sound money. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see do people want to spend that. You know, we, we see people, people do spend it. Mostly uh, they spend ETH or Ether to, um, you know, pay fees on the Ethereum network. But people also do spend Ethereum for everyday items. Um, you have Litecoin, for example. Everybody calls Litecoins like the silver to Bitcoin's gold. So there are a lot of people who really love their Litecoin. And they, they say, hey, I like to hold my Bitcoin, but I spend my Litecoin. right? And, and there are these interesting cultural nuances each of these crypto communities have into, hey, I, I like to save this. I like to spend that. This has better, you know, this has more transactions per second. There are a lot out there, um, but really, I think the, the winners here are going to be Bitcoin. It's going to be stable coins. And then I think for, for the altcoins, all these other cryptocurrencies out there, you're going to have it really based on communities. The members of a community are going to say, hey, I like this coin. I want to operate within this coin. They participate in that community. And they're going to use that for payment spending to live on, uh, you know, whatever that community, that protocol um, utilizes that token for. 
And that's where it's a little bit more amorphous. It depends on each individual you know, cryptocurrency you're, you're talking about. Got you. Got you. Fascinating. So another layer of crypto payments, which is sort of the lifeblood of what would be widespread adoption. Mm-hmm. Okay. The ability to conduct commerce back and forth payments, receive payments, give payments, et cetera. We're talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about stablecoin. Now we're talking about altcoins. And then within all those payment related altcoins, you're saying that there are some powerful communities that have congregated around these coins and they can become and, and, and as you pointed out, some of these coins have characteristics which make them appealing to these community members, whether it's the speed, uh, the privacy, whatever the heck it is, these communities are quite powerful mm-hmm. in, in many cases. And so it will become some of them will reach uh, quite widespread adoption and have fanatic communities around them mm-hmm. and will be part of this matrix of payment possibilities within crypto. Is that fair? I, I think that hits the nail on the head. Okay. And you, you know, you've mentioned Ethereum, you've mentioned Litecoin, just what else is sort of promising? What, what communities are pretty strong and, and up and coming, so to speak in that particular category? So it's hard to say there's a lot of them and a lot of them that are okay. small. There's a lot of them very controversial. Uh, you know, Bitcoin cash, for example, you know, that, mm. that's very controversial. They split off from Bitcoin and said, hey, we're going to make some changes to the core protocol. We believe that our system is better. Our transactions are really fast. Um, you know, the problem being that it becomes a little less decentralized. That was kind of the, the they call it the block size wars. Uh, mm. So, you know, but you have some people that, you know, part of the Bitcoin community kind of splintered off and now they're a part of that community. And they have their own ongoing development that's happening there. Um, so there's all sorts of communities out there. Um, some big, some small, but the biggest one is Bitcoin. That's by far the biggest crypto community. Um, you know, Ethereum after that. Stable coins, you can't ignore. There's just so much value there. And then all these other communities, I think it's still to be seen what's going to be, what, what's really going to happen there. Got you. Very helpful. And by, by the way, we've, we've had Roger Ver on this podcast some years ago. And, you know, again, I, I, I don't get involved in the cut and thrust and mm-hmm. fighting and all this nonsense. I'm not, that's, I'm, I'm here to learn. And most of the people that listen to this are here to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, whatever you want to say about the guy, he walks the walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has walked the walk, man, yep. in his life. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's endured a lot for his beliefs. And so, and, you know, good for him. Uh, uh, but let's leave it at that. There, you're saying there's a lot of communities and, you know, it's unclear which will achieve primacy. But right now, Bitcoin, stable coins, Ethereum, some others. Okay. So super helpful, my friend. Thank you. Let's now shift gears a little bit. What are the main sort of issues surrounding the 
widespread adoptions of crypto payments, both from the people making purchases Mm -hmm. and from the merchants. What's going on there? Let's start with the people making purchases. Yeah. So I think the first thing is, you know, what currency are you spending? How are you going to spend it? What merchants are going to accept crypto, right? There's a lot of unknowns here, right? So, um, you know, say you have Bitcoin. It's always simple to start with Bitcoin. You want to spend your Bitcoin. You know, you want to go on Amazon. You want to, you know, whatever. You just want to start making payments with Bitcoin. You know, like I said, there are some problems. It takes a long time sometimes. A merchant may not accept Bitcoin, right? About maybe one or two percent of merchants accept Bitcoin. Um, so the question is, how does someone make a payment? And and there's a few options, right? Like I said, either it's a merchant that accepts it already. You know, say you go to overstock.com, they accept Bitcoin or hotels.com. Um, and that's fine. But if a merchant does not, often what you have to do is you get a crypto debit card. You load it with crypto and that allows you to spend it wherever you know, Visa or MasterCard Amex is accepted. So there are some nuances there, uh, you know, loading this crypto onto the card. Um, you know, what is the exchange rate that you're getting every time you swipe? Does the conversion happen when you load it onto the card? Does the conversion happen when you swipe? Um, there are a lot of nuances there. Um, that's why, you know, again, stablecoin solves a lot of those problems because you don't have to worry about the conversion rate. Um, but that's where, you know, you really have to think, hey, how, how, how would I spend this, right? I have my value here. And what most people have done, they just sell their crypto for, for fiat currency and then spend their fiat currency. The downside there is you're paying transaction fees. You, know, you got to wire the money. It's going to take three days for you to get access to the funds generally. So uh, that's where these, these crypto debit cards have taken off, or even buying gift cards with crypto. That, that alone is about $3 billion annually. People buying wow. like Amazon, Best Buy gift cards with crypto. Uh, wow. So there's a, there is a lot of activity happening that people don't really realize. Billions of dollars every year. Hmm. Amazing. All right. So it sounds like, you know, for widespread adoption, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, I mean, it, mm-hmm. it sounds pretty logical. Uh, you know, the more and more merchants that accept cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. this will, you know, get into the mainstream more and more. And, and, you know, overstock hotels, I'm sure there are a ton of others. And then, and more and more as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And then you've got another on-ramp, which is gift cards. She said is massive, you know, billions already. And then the crypto debit uh, debit cards angle as well, where you load cards with crypto. Uh, but uh, and there are many nuances that I would like to get into later. Okay, so let's let's talk about the merchants. Mm-hmm. You mentioned two companies. Like, are there any other major companies get uh, allowing purchases in crypto that? That you can mention, yeah. So a big one, you know, in the last couple of months, they they added this was PayPal. So if a merchant accepts PayPal now, you can pay with crypto at that merchant. So you know that's quite a bit. That includes Walmart, right? Uh, so that that's pretty powerful. Um, Got it. 
the way I look at it is, you know, kind of crypto payments is almost like a marketplace that has to be bootstrapped. Do you get all the merchants to start accepting crypto first, or do you get all the consumers to start spending crypto first? And what we've seen is that there's initially much more demand for consumers to spend it. So that's where these crypto debit cards and gift cards come in, right? It allows them to spend their crypto. Really what's happening, it's being converted to dollars and the merchants are accepting the dollars, right? But once you've built up that demand to spend and that, that behavior, the consumer spending their crypto, that now drives the merchants to start to accept the crypto. So, so that's how I look at it. You bootstrap one side, right? The consumers aren't really spending their crypto. The merchants are, not, are actually getting dollars right now. But once you have enough consumer spending, the merchants will add it. And there's an enormous amount of value to merchants accepting cryptocurrency. A lot of their biggest problems around payments are all around, you know, they're accepting credit cards and they're paying high interchange fees and there's fraud and chargebacks. And so there's enormous amount of logic behind a merchant accepting cryptocurrency. Right now, though, uh, for any merchant that does accept crypto, on average, it's one to two percent of their volume. So, it, mm. you know, it's a hard choice. You know, if you know any any e-commerce brand, their checkout page is, you know, really the the holy, the holiest of holies, right? For them to make a, a change to their checkout page is enormous. So, you know, to say, hey, you know, they're not willy-nilly just gonna throw a new payment option out there because they don't want that, you know, the paradox of choice. You get to the checkout page and you're like, I don't know which payment method to use, right? They keep it simple. They, you know, Amazon spent billions of dollars optimizing their checkout page. So there has to be a very, very strong reason for them to add crypto payments. And, I, and it comes down to this bootstrapping, right? At a certain critical threshold of consumer spending of crypto, the merchants will add it. And then both sides end up participating in crypto. It doesn't get converted back to dollars uh, in, in that exchange, at least. Got you. Got you. Uh, so much, So much to unpack there, but... I guess the biggest question I have there is and when we touched on this before, when we got into the reasons a lot of people want to be transacting in crypto, mm -hmm. we talked about a lot of folks overseas, in particular day laborers here, remittances, mm -hmm. all kinds of use cases. What, what, if you look at it orchestrally, this marketplace is, you know, the demand side of consumers, what's driving that increased adoption of wanting to transact in crypto? Mm -hmm. Well, there's more and more applications in crypto that are bringing people in. People are putting their money into crypto. Maybe they're playing a game that involves cryptocurrency. They're earning cryptocurrency playing a game or they are, you know, their employer pays them. Again, this generally has to do with overseas transactions, but they're getting paid in crypto for performing some job or service. Um, you know, maybe they're playing around in a DeFi protocol. Right, they're they're generating revenue now by participating in a cryptocurrency ecosystem. Uh, why would I want to necessarily go back into the fiat system? I want to stay in crypto because mm -hmm. now I can move my money wherever I want to move it. I have more control over things. I don't want to store my dollars in a savings account if I can do yield farming and get ten percent APY on my deposits. Right? Why do I want to hold? I don't want to hold dollars. I want to hold cryptocurrency. That's where that's where it's at. So I don't want to go back. There's no point to going back. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, absolutely 
mind blowing to me. Like when you just said that the more people that are making money in crypto, whether it's their gamers that are winning prize money or getting paid in crypto. And I, I know that's getting huge or people getting paid, as you said, for work, coding, whatever in crypto around the world, they're getting, eh? and on and on one more use case, maybe people making a ton trading crypto. Right. And, and, and that's kind of blown out their net worth to, to massive proportions or, you know, uh, why the hell they've made their money in crypto. Why the hell do they want to go back to fiat? And as you said, they're, they're yield farmer. They're making, you know, instead of keeping it in a checking account where, you know, they're making no interest. And then as the dollar <laughs> devalues, you know, over time, if you listen to Mike Saylor's uh, podcasts, uh, you know, you know, he, he basically points out that, you know, with this level of printing, you're, you're, you're giving up, you know, I forget what it was, 10, 15% <laughs> a year devalued. So they want to yield farm. They want to make money on their money. Mm -hmm. So the more use cases that emerge of the crypto ecosystem, people getting paid, compensated, making money, eh, it's just going to drive adoption. Okay. I, I, I get it now. So then they, they want to buy stuff in crypto and, and they don't have patience when they can't and they'll go to merchants that make it easy. Okay. It's uh, right. It's supply and demand. I got you. Okay. Wow. The light bulb went off for me. The first person that really made that go off for me. Thank you so much. Huge. Okay. Let's now talk about what, what you're doing day to day. You're the founder of moon. The link is paywithmoon.com. What is it and how does it work? And what are you trying to do? So what we're really trying to do is enable the use case to allow people to live on cryptocurrency. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons people are holding more and more crypto, just like we were talking. You know, how do people now very easily, conveniently transact in crypto to live on it, make payments? So what we've done uh, our product right now allows you to create these uh, virtual Visa cards. You can load cryptocurrency to these cards and then spend wherever Visa is accepted. It's a, a very simple system that allows people to live on their crypto if they'd like. And we have a few different nuanced differences from some of the other products that are on the market. We focus on privacy. Um, you know, we, we make sure that we're not collecting, you know, we don't require a lot of KYC information. We don't need to know much about that. So we can plug into more of this DeFi world. We can help people who would otherwise, you know, be unbanked or underbanked. They can utilize our service. Uh, and, and that's something that's really, you know, very powerful for people. Uh, and yeah. more and more we're seeing people get into crypto and they say, well, I, I need to buy stuff. I need to live on this. You know, there's a lot of our customers that are, they've been dollar cost averaging Bitcoin for five years. And now it's 99% of their net worth because the mm -hmm. value just, just blew up. And now they're like, well, why, again, like we were saying, why would I go back to dollars, right? So we allow people to just instantaneously issue a card, load Bitcoin onto it and go shopping, pay their bills, pay their taxes, uh, you know, so they don't have to go back into the world of, of, you know, dollars. Wow. Wow. Huge. You're a facilitator. You're an on-ramp. You're a bridge. 
where crypto folks can continue living on their island, so to speak, their crypto island. And you're facilitating their engagement with commerce in the fiat world, so to speak, via these moon cards, which are, you mentioned Visa. So essentially, I think to drive it home, let's go back to a use case or two on the, on the human side. Give us, give us a, a, an example of a person who might be using this right now. Tell, tell us what they do. Absolutely. So great example. Um, you know, someone remits funds to someone in Nigeria, right? And this is actually a, a, someone, someone that we had use our product. They're in Nigeria. They wanted to buy a PlayStation 5, right? Uh, one, if you're in Nigeria, you can't get a Visa card with more than a $100 limit on it. Uh, doesn't matter how much money you have. Just can't, can't do that, right? It, there's a lot of government controls around that. Um, we have a $1,000 limit for, for someone in that situation. So straight off the bat, uh, you know, that is very powerful, right? They, get, they can get cryptocurrency on a peer-to-peer exchange, or like I said, through remittances, they receive that cryptocurrency. Oh, let me spin up a Visa card. It takes five seconds. Send, send the Bitcoin to it. Now I just, I just bought a PlayStation 5, and, uh, and then they just ship it on over to Nigeria. So very powerful. Yeah. Otherwise, the, right. al- the alternative is you're trying to find you know, a relative in the U.S. You're going to wire them some money. They're going to buy it for you. And it's this ridiculous, convoluted system. Um, and, th- and that's why you wow. see a lot of adoption of crypto in Nigeria. Got you. Okay. Fascinating. Right. And, and in that story, you know, the relative in the U.S. has to go out to a store, buy it, bring it home, figure out a way to ship it expensive, could get lost, could get stolen, whatever. And then, um, right. So here you're cutting out all that nonsense. The person in Nigeria spins up a moon card, which is a visa card, you know, powered by moon thousand dollar limit instead of the hundred dollar limit, they buy whatever they need mm-hmm. and the merchant ships it directly. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they ship directly. It depends on the merchant. Otherwise, they can get a freight forwarder uh, and to, to send that to them. Um, but one, one of the other interesting use cases is, you know, even simpler than that, Netflix, right? Hmm. Like a lot of places around the world, you can't actually get Netflix or Spotify. Either you can't open a bank account because you don't have the proper documentation or uh, a lot of U.S. merchants, for example, won't accept foreign cards because they say, oh, this, this is you know, high likelihood of fraud. We don't want to deal with it, right? So we have a lot of people, they use our product to get a, net, a Netflix account, a Spotify account, something where in the US, we take that for granted yes. so much, right? And to just think that, you know, someone in Ghana is you know, a great example. They can't get Netflix. How are they going to get Netflix? It's, it's ridiculous mm-hmm. that that's a problem, right? But Netflix doesn't support <laughs> their payment options. So- you know, get a little Bitcoin, spin up a moon card, and now you got Netflix. And, and to them, it's, it's life-changing. Wow. Wow. So right now, as you look at your user base, what are you seeing, like, demographic-wise, geography-wise? Yeah, so we see a lot coming from outside the U.S., specifically Latin America. A lot of people, you know... Uh, when we launched this thing, we didn't we didn't target anybody overseas, right? But we had a lot of people. You know, I got a lot of email in Spanish very quickly, saying, "Hey, 
um, you know, how, like, like, how are you doing this? <laughs> it's like, this is, this product is changing my life. And I didn't expect that at all. You know, I, I really thought that, Hey, this is really going to be targeting the crypto community. Uh, whereas what we actually end up seeing a lot of people who started learning about crypto to use our product. Uh, and, and that's really, I think a lot of the power of crypto is that every time a new application comes up, it's, it brings new people. And that's the built-in network effect of these cryptocurrency networks, you know? Wow. No. Remarkable. And okay. So you've got folks around the world using moon. You're unlocking opportunities for them that didn't exist before. Where is this going? So what are the next sort of uh, steps on, on the journey at moon? Yeah, so really our goal is to allow people to live entirely in crypto, right? So the way we see it is Moon is going to become this crypto challenger bank. And it's going to allow people to not just spend crypto, but we're going to onboard people. Let's get them their first crypto if they've never had any before. Uh, we can hold on to that for them, or we can allow them to do that themselves. We, we like to say we're custody optional, right? Really stay true to the core tenets of, uh, of crypto. And, um, and then like what we have today, allow people to spend it. And that's really what we consider to be the replacement or rather the alternative to the traditional bank today. Um, and I, I always joke, it's the true challenger bank, right? I look at a lot of things that they call themselves a challenger bank. And I'm like, yeah, they're not challenging banks all that much uh, with this. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are very different from a bank at its core that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to be migrating away from banks and living on crypto more and more. Right. It's, 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 it kind of sounds like a new species mm -hmm. uh, altogether. It's, exactly. uh, it's somewhere a person can go. It's totally custody optional. They can store their crypto with the moon challenger mm -hmm. bank, or it doesn't matter where, but you, by virtue of being involved, you open up uh, all kinds of avenues for them to remain crypto native, so to speak. Okay. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, live their lives completely in cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. which is the, what, what it sounds like an increasing number of humans will want to be doing for the ease of use, mm -hmm. the convenience, the speed, the programmability, the yield. Mm -hmm. And, tons of other use cases, as you said, what, what are some, what, give us a, give us a peek. What are some sure. of the increasing use cases, please? Yeah. So I, there, there's so much happening right now. Um, specifically in gaming, there's a new concept of play to earn games. So yeah. there's a game called Axie infinity right now, and you have a very large population of people in the Philippines. It, there, it has become their primary source of income, Right. And uh, to the point where you even have local shops are accepting what's called SLP. It's like something love potion, right? And you can go to a convenience store and you're buying food and snacks with love potion tokens that you earned in a game. And, um, and, and that coincided with COVID. So a lot of people, you know, they're staying home. They started playing this game and now it's you know, supporting their whole family. So that's been fascinating. And it's a lot of this idea of, of earning crypto whether that be rewards points. Uh, there's a lot of crypto rewards cards now. You have 
uh, games. There's a there's a company called ZebiD that allows you to play Counter Strike, and you can win Bitcoin for just playing the game based on how well you perform. So I think you're going to see a lot of esports involving crypto. Mm. Ooh. Yeah, that's going to be huge. Um, and then there's just you know, DeFi is only two years old at this point, right? That was a brand new concept that came out and just kind of took the world by storm. And I'm just excited to see, you know, that's evolving at a very fast rate. But what's next, right? What's the what's the next DeFi that someone's going to come up with? Um, you know, decentralized social media, decentralize this, decentralize that, where tokens and Bitcoin and all sorts of stuff's going to happen that, you know, we, we can't even predict because there's so much creativity going on in the industry right now. Uh, but we do know that in the end, you got to pay your bills. You got to eat food, right? So, so, you know, it's a matter, you know, for us, we're positioning ourselves and saying, hey, you know, whatever, whatever is coming this way, we know this is the future. People are going to want to live on crypto. Um, whatever those use cases may be, we, we want to be there to support them. And uh, even with all the use cases there are today, you know, I think the, the mission is there. It's very clear that there are a lot of people who need help and that we can help them right now. Amazing. Let's uh, let's talk a little about this world that, that we're that you're describing, you know, where more and more people are living in the crypto arena, making money, the burgeoning economy there, earning money, all the use cases we just described. I won't list them all again. It, it, it's infinite, really. Um, they'll be transacting. They'll be buying consuming, using crypto. They'll have cards with, with you, with, with Moon. And what is being unlocked in this future for humanity, really? Like, what is really going on here? So, you know, there's a lot of opinions on where the world's going, where this is going, right? And, you know, I think, I'll say, I think eventually we're all going to be living on crypto. To me, that's an inevitability, and that's that's one of the reasons why I started uh, started Moon. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just the way the world is going. And there's a lot of different trajectories it could take for us to get there. But I think what we're going to see is people are going to have a lot more freedom with their money. We're going to see a breakdown of of borders when you know moving money. Right. It's it's already happening with remittances. Um, used to be, if you want to move money overseas, you get on a plane with a briefcase, briefcase full of cash, right? <laughs> no, you don't have to do that anymore. You know, mm-hmm. just hit a button. Um, so, you know, you're going to see a, a, a real change and a disruption. And so within crypto, there's this idea of the separation of money and state. And it's something that, you know, it ends up being very controversial. But the idea is in the same way in the past, we had a separation of church and state. There's this idea that in the future, we're going to have a separation of money and state and that, you know, money is too important to have in the hands of the government. You know, we see around the world, you know, in the U.S., that that's very controversial. But if you're in Venezuela, Argentina, Nigeria, Lebanon, right, this is a very reasonable idea. They, they do not want their government involved with their money because the government's screwing it up. So, um, so, so there's this concept of, hey, money is programmable now. Money, these are global decentralized currencies that are outside the uh, the realm of governments 
uh, you know, governments can rise and fall and these, these currencies can stay the same. And we've never really had that before. Maybe the closest thing was gold, right? And then again, that's, you know, Bitcoin's narrative has become, you know, Bitcoin is this digital gold, right? Yes. So there's a lot of interesting things that are happening here. And I think we're going to go into a world of more free market economics in the world of money and in the world of finance. Um, there's going to be a lot of censorship resistance with these decentralized systems that are being built. And we're going to see a lot more around communities, right? You know, we saw a lot of online communities on Twitter and Reddit and things like that. But now you have this aspect of, um, you know, communities being tied in with their money, right? And communities, th this whole idea of now decentralized governments, what are called DAOs, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. And, you know, I think that's going to be extremely powerful and it's going to break down a lot of uh, borders, geographic borders. You're going to allow people to organize, collectively pool their funds in order to achieve goals, Um you know, it's all very nascent right now, but it's going in that direction. There's a lot of innovation happening. There's a lot of people dedicating their lives to these ideas. And, uh, and that's, that, that's where I think the world's headed. Remarkable. The description you just gave of the state and church separating and, and likening this time to be what we're seeing is the beginning of the separation of money and state is seismic and it, re it resonates, you know, and I've never heard someone describe it that way. Um, you know, powerful. Um, and I remember years ago, a, a very smart friend told me, uh, you know, he said, one day everyone's going to have a Facebook account and I, I'll, I'll never forget that. And I was saying to myself, Jesus, I'm never going to have one of these things, but God, was he right? Um, so this is this is powerful. You you and you just said everyone's going to be transacting crypto. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm marking that in my mind. This is this is one of those moments. Um, you mentioned DAOs. You mentioned communities tied to their money. That's another powerful concept. Um, that in 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 some respects has not existed in this incarnation ever. Yeah. You know, maybe you know we've had you know, tribes mm -hmm. who use currency. We've have countries and, and governments that use certain currencies, but these cross-border international communities that center themselves around a particular cryptocurrency, that's, that's new. That's never happened. That's a, a new thing in this world, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that, that's massive. And you know, there's, I see so much talent pouring into the space. So many engineers, as you said, people devoting their lives to this, you know, you, you know, that you do, you do think like when you really look into this and you speak with people like yourself who've put, are putting their lives and their youth and their energy and, and their smarts and their engineering backgrounds into this world, you're like, man, I get it. I, I believe this is happening. So, you know, Ken, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And uh, we would love to have you back uh, as, as a regular uh, educator for, for us, if you're amenable. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me and happy to come back anytime. Tremendous. Okay. Take care. Take care, my friend. Thank you very much.
Hey everyone, Dave Lerner here. I hope you're liking the Venture Studio podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks. I appreciate the support as always. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know?